Good evening, and welcome to episode four of the Mental Health Break podcast, a podcast that talks about everything and nothing at the same time. I'm your host, Tom Holzerman, or TH, if you will. And if you found this podcast through the newsletter, thank you for being a friend, traveling down the road and back again. Um, but if you happen to chance upon this podcast without pressing sub on the newsletter, why don't you take a few minutes out of your day, not even a few minutes, a few seconds out of your day, to click subscribe and you'll get three, not one, not two, but three posts a week in your inbox, um, either three thoughtful and well-written, at least I hope so, um, newsletters about life in general, or two thoughtful, well-thought-out newsletters, and a podcast like this. Um, I tried recording with him uh, being of the month, and for some reason, uh, that the technical difficulties uh, squelched that from being produced. But I have back with me um, a, a dear, dear friend from Twitter, um, incredible Twitter user, and also you may know him from his three podcasts. Um, well, actually, two podcasts. I don't think the third one started yet. Uh, there's Podcast Sans Frontiers, which is about Metal Gear Solid and all things Hideo Kojima. And then there's also my brother, my my captain, my brother, my podcast. I say that right? My brother, my captain, my podcast? Yeah, you got it there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is about Lord of the Rings. And then you'll also be seeing some Final Fantasy VI podcasting from him uh, in the coming future. Please welcome Manu. How you doing, bud? Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, you know, spring is here. The weather is getting slightly warmer, which is just an instant mood booster. But uh, can't complain. Uh, everything's going pretty well. It's a dream of spring, only it's not really a dream anymore. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's here. It's here officially. But I, I don't think we're getting a dream of spring for, for you know, years now. He's not even done Winds of Winter yet. We're talking about George R.R. R. Martin. So if, if I can uh, voice my theory on that, I think a dream of spring would come fast if we get Winds of Winter. I think George knows what happens in a dream of spring. I think him getting there in the Winds of Winter is the biggest hurdle for him. Because uh, I, I was going to say, I imagine that um, going all the way back to like 92, 93, when George first started writing A Song of Ice and Fire, um, I assume everyone knows that's what was adapted into Game of Thrones, but uh, he kind of knew the endpoints of, say, the Starks, the Lannisters, Daenerys Targaryen, um, but it's kind of like the story grew in the telling, and I think he wrote himself into a couple corners, specifically out east with Daenerys and Slaver's Bay, uh, and he's having trouble kind of bringing everything home to the conclusion he wants. So I think that explains why A Dance with Dragons and The Winds of Winter, still upcoming, have taken so long. But my feeling is if we get those, then A Dream of Spring shouldn't be too far off. Well, I hope so. I think all the book readers are anxious to see whether um, George, you know, uh, sticks with the ending that the showrunners uh, went with, um, which presumably he gave to them. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you would hope that he had some creative input. Or if he sort of sees the negative reaction to it and does a U-turn. But I don't think he really cares. He's swimming in money. And, and now um, you're actually risked even another one of his projects. Uh, also, uh, Hiseo Miyazaki. Am I saying that name right? Uh, Hideki Miyazaki, not the uh, Miyazaki who does the Studio Ghibli films. Oh, um, but uh, I mean, it's a it's a common mistake. But I think it's Hideaki um, or Hidetaki Miyazaki. Sorry. So he's um, Elden Ring, which is I guess is that a, is that a Dark Souls game or? Yeah, it very much is. Although this is my first real Souls game, I did play Jedi Fallen Order, which is kind of based on um, the Souls mechanics. But this is truly from the developers of like the Demon Souls and Dark Souls games, and it is every bit as punishing and brutal as those games, but they put it in an open world, which allows the player to basically go and do whatever they want. And if they just need to kill a bunch of helpless animals to build up experience, they can do that as they learn the game's mechanics. So uh, when we talked last, I was just getting the game and really struggling with it. And now I am really good at the game and still struggling with it uh, because it's just... The difficulty just keeps scaling upwards. I'm at like level almost 100 at this point, but there's still a bunch of enemies, not even bosses, just normal open world enemies who give me fits. So um, it's not 
it's not necessarily like one of those uh, gaming experiences where you pick up, you play, you have fun, and you just rip through it. Um, it's a game of grinding, of repeated failure, but uh, in that, it makes it really rewarding when you do break through whatever obstacles are holding you back. I think I, find, I felt like I lost out a little bit when I sort of fell off gaming and, and stuck with Nintendo over the years. I didn't really get into the Souls or, or um, any other big franchise like Red Dead or... Um, or some other games. I'm, I'm sort of blanking on this. Uh, but. Yeah, I'm not too far. So I've mostly been a PlayStation player for the last couple of generations, though I did buy a Nintendo Switch. And I've, until very recently, I've mostly stuck to A, the Metal Gear franchise, but then also just like the big AAA games. I played a bunch of Uncharted's and Assassin's Creed's, um, but nothing really. Um, anything that's like up my alley in terms of IP, like I played all the Batman Arkham games. Yeah. I played the Lord of the Rings games. I play Star Wars games because, you know, you, you know how I am. You're exactly the same way. Those are things that either feed into the lore that we spend all day talking about or are, you know, kind of plays on the lore we spend all day talking about. You know, it's funny you mentioned our Uncharted and I'm a, I got some other game that missed me. I'm, I'm at the point right now where like, I'm just waiting for Nintendo franchise titles and whatever fun little, you know, retro um, in sub AAA indie titles. Like I played Hollow Knight and Dead Cells till my eyes bled for both of them, and they're both fantastic games. Um, but you know, the Uncharted thing passed me by, but that's kind of in the news right now. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But what are your thoughts on uh, Mark Wahlberg and Tom Holland being the two principals Jeez, in that movie? Um- well, I have nothing redemptive for the Mark Wahlberg casting. I just think that one's bad all around. Tom Holland, who I I, I will say I like him as Peter Parker in Spider-Man. Um, I haven't really enjoyed anything else he's in, but I think that's just the quality of the films he's been in otherwise. I could see him being a really young like teenage or young adult Nathan Drake. And he is uh, a dancer and a gymnast, which is part of why he was cast as Spider-Man. And I can see making that a very... Um, you know, you can use that to make your Nathan Drake and have Tom Holland do a bunch of his stunts. But I just don't think he has like the right swagger or the right grit or ruggedness that Nathan Drake has. And I'm kind of just questioning why this movie exists because the games exist as a sort of knockoff of like the Indiana Jones genre of stuff. So the fact that we're now getting movies based on this game is like, the most extreme case of the snake eating its tail I have seen in pop culture. We are through the looking glass people. Yes, we are. I just, yeah, I, I, I think I've only ever seen Tom, Tom Holland. And I, and I think seen as uh, generous because he wasn't seen in the movie. He was the voice of the younger brother in onward, which was a cute movie. It's Pixar, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, I mean, Pixar it sort of has a, has a real high baseline. Yeah. It's got a high floor. I, I haven't seen the latest. I think Turning Red is a Pixar um, joint, not a Disney joint, but I hear that one's doing are really incredible, and I'm eager to see that. But Pixar rarely fails, though. Um, I noticed people have said that the quality has dipped a little bit, but they're also putting out three to four movies a year, which is pretty new to them as well. You, you know, I mean, as long as it's not like Cars 2, I'm, I'm <laughs> right. yeah. happy with it. Um, and my wife didn't like soul. I, I, I was sort of ambivalent on soul, but I mean, if you can get past the first sort of couple of minutes where, um, where mailing sort of girl, girl bosses her way through middle school, which is kind of like cringy. I mean, but I mean, I, I said in the news, in my newsletter on Tuesday, um, you know, a lot of really good movies have some cringe parts in it. And like, it, it turns into a really, uh, really, uh, fun, but also soulful and, you know, downright hilarious at times uh, movie that examines sort of the, this traditional Chinese family in, in 2002 Toronto. And then the girl that the protagonist, she, she loves boy band. She has friends and, but she's also, you, you know, sort of scared of her mother. Who's a helicopter parent. I don't- no, that's fair. I think what you're saying is right. Is Pixar has like a very high floor. I think that's something that's true of a lot of what Disney has under uh, house right now, including like the Marvel films. Like, even the ones that aren't great, you don't expect them to be terrible at this point. They'll always be, you know, an adequate use of 90 to 150 minutes, depending. Uh, so that's always nice to have something that's pretty bankable, enjoyable entertainment to have. Oh, yeah. And, and then the Marvel stuff, you know, it gets a bad rap. 
and it's for good reasons, probably not because of the quality, maybe, maybe for some people it is, and it, different strokes and everything. It's just sort of like the stranglehold it has on the box office, and, and sort of, I'm sort of winding around, sort of getting to a more roundabout way of what we talked about first last time, you know, these huge IPs that are being bought up by big companies. You know, Disney has all this stuff, and Warner Brothers has the, um, the DC universe, which they really have mostly fumbled, although I did like Aquaman and Shazam, and those were the only two I've seen from, from DC. But um, um, I would say the new Batman movie is pretty solid, but I agree with that. I think Shazam is uh, low-key, maybe my favorite of the DC movies, um, at least up until the Batman came out. And I do enjoy uh, like Birds of Prey and the recent James Gunn Suicide Squad, but still it's a lot of those are, oh, that was fun. Um, I'm not quite like trying to connect the dots uh, like I do with, say, you know, the Avengers movies or Captain America, but that could also be those, you know, movies have like a decade of momentum of quality um, that makes it easier to sink your teeth into as opposed to uh, DC, which is kind of returning back to the one-off or the loosely connected fair of yesteryear. Yeah, I think DC's mistake, that whole thing was they wanted to, to get the, the multiverse and not sort of put it like Marvel and you could argue they kind of had to because they didn't have the rights to Spider-Man. They didn't have the rights to the X-Men and those were the, the two tent poles. So they kind of had to build Iron Man who, you know, if you believe it or not, like 15 years ago, Iron Man, no one gave a shit about him. You know, it was just sort of like comic book nerds who, you know, knew Tony Stark was this guy who was, you know, cool. And he was a rich guy. And then, you know, people like Captain America and, and um, the Incredible Hulk had a little more cachet, but they were still B-list. And then no one really gave a shit about Thor either. And then the way that, that Marvel Studios built that up from the ground out of necessity, like DC thought they could just plop down. And to their credit, you know, DC has three of the most recognizable comic book heroes of all time. You know, mm-hmm. your mileage varies on Spider-Man versus Wonder Woman, but I mean, Batman and Superman are no doubt, you know, who you think about when you think about superheroes. Yeah, especially Batman, just because uh, for people our age, Batman has been like the most viable uh, IP of the comics, like whole medium, Uh, because I grew up with the Batman 66, not live, but they were airing reruns in the 80s and early 90s still. And then we had the Keaton movies, Batman, the animated series. And it's just basically been Batman content coming out all my life in a way that like Superman, Spider-Man, they've all gone through like kind of dead periods or. Uh, no adaptations outside of the comics realm, but Batman's always been like present. So um, that's probably got to have the most or near the most uh, cultural cachet amongst comic properties. Yeah. Um, historically, it still might be Superman if you're talking to through history, but I think currently there's no question that there's a reason why they can keep making Batman movies, even though, you know, the, the Nolan trilogy is still pretty fresh in everybody's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one property that is fresh, not really fresh in people's minds, mainly because that, that trilogy came out around the turn of the century, this century, not, you know, the, what people would normally refer to as the turn of the century. Um, Peter Jackson made three pretty swell movies, if you ask me. Um, he did The Unthinkable and adapted Lord of the Rings. Um, we still watch them today. I mean, I just got done watching it with my family. Um, people still rewatch them all the time. And what we're looking at here is Amazon, the penis man, Jeff Bezos, uh, acquired the rights to Lord of the, Lord of the Rings to J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, wonderful, weird little universe there. And he has charged his team with making a new series called Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before. We can rehash a little bit, maybe get some more insight on it. Um, now, uh, I thought the, the conversation we had before was real good, but no one's going to hear it because you know, it's lost the time. Oh, it's but, cool. We can have second uh, second recording, just like Eleven Z's and uh, <laughs> all the other Hobbit meals that we don't get to enjoy as humans. I really hope we don't need Eleven Z's for this. Oh, I, I hope uh, sec- second podcast will be enough. <laughs> uh, so we sort of cleared it up before, but... Going in, this is what we're looking at here is the fall of Numenor. Mm -hmm. I think we are looking at events that 
broadly take place over the Second Age. One thing we do know about the story is that it's going to take several events from the Second Age, which might be hundreds, if not thousands of years apart, and try to coalesce them into a single narrative. Uh, what the length of time that narrative will take, who knows, but um, presumably it will be done in a way that allows it to occur within the lifespan of various human or Numenorean characters. And I think the broader, basically the broader take on this is going to be, this will be where the rings of power are forged, uh, the rise of Sauron, um, perhaps for the second time, um, is kind of going to be like the main focal point, though we might not get all of that in the initial series. I think they kind of, they're playing it real safe with the branding on the series by calling it the Lord of Rings or the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, um, because they're trying to hit all that SEO on Ring and Lord of the Rings and trying to be crystal clear on what it's building to. But um, I would be shocked if we get anything like a powerful magic ring by the end of the first season. But we'll see. Um, they kind of have. So from an ad adaptation standpoint, what they have the rights to is the, th the Lord of the Rings and anything in its appendices. Um, that includes stuff that, uh, you know, Tolkien, you know, tossed off, like this person's related to this person or this thing occurred in the Second Age. Um, and then there are hints that there might be stuff from other parts of the Legendarium, which is the term for Tolkien's fantasy world that includes Middle-earth. Um, but that is kind of unclear because the official press still says that everything in the show is going to be specifically from the Lord of the Rings and mostly the appendices. Though if, say, Aragorn told a story about something that happened in the Second Age, that's fair game for the show to adapt as well. Yes. And we're um, heading into uncharted territory because outside of these little... Uh, uh, nuggets, you know, these little things that Tolkien sort of peppered in the Lord of the Rings. Um, he didn't really flesh out a lot of the Second Age. Um, from what I understand, the Silmarillion, which, um, yeah, it's, that's, that's First Age stuff, or at least early Second Age. And he didn't really, he left a lot of notes. He left a lot of unfinished works. So what do you think the, the, what do you think the challenges of adapting Apocrypha uh, to put it, you know, lightly, is going to be for a team, uh, for, for a, a studio that basically is handling major IP for the first time. Yeah, so uh, to rewind a bit, uh, Jeff Bezos specifically went after the rights for The Lord of the Rings and wants the show to be Amazon's Game of Thrones. And I think there's an obvious, like, aesthetic similarity between, like, the fantasy medieval. But I think really he's just saying, I want a big fucking hit. Oh, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but you can. You uh, can. <laughs> so he just wants something that's as massive and embrace. I think Game of Thrones is one of the last parts of the monoculture before it kind of died and gave way to everyone in their own little entertainment bubbles. And I think he's looking to recapture that kind of energy and that kind of like water cooler talk, even though a lot of us are not going into an office right now or we're just starting to, but I think he wants to have, you know, that Sunday night or whenever these shows drop, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's tweeting about it. Um, he wants it to be like the thing that makes Amazon streaming, uh, you know, prestige or like a can't miss streaming service, which I think a lot of people already have Amazon Prime just because of the delivery and the other benefits for it. But I think he views this as kind of like this will make my streaming service. And yeah, we have. I'm sorry, we have we have Amazon Prime because my wife is uh, likes to use it to to get deals, and I can't blame her. You know, mm -hmm. as much as I hate the, the business model, it's like I'm a bad, I'm hypocrite, I'm a hypocritical bad guy who uh, revels in the spoils of it. But that's capitalism for you. Um, we did. I mean, they did have a few really good adaptations, uh, critically from what I've heard, and also firsthand. I saw uh, Good Omens. Um, that was really good, a really good adaptation. But I could be just could, just could that just could be because I could probably watch Michael Sheen and David Tennant read the phone book, and I'd be happy. And then it also had John Hamm and um, Nick Offerman. Although Nick Offerman was in it scant little for you know how much he was in the trailers for it. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, Amazon has uh, has had some pretty good success in the last couple of years. I know Invincible and The Boys are two shows that have specifically um, 
you know, got a rave reviews from people we know and critics alike. Um, I think the fun thing is that uh, Jeff Bezos has these properties and then he turns the Lex Luthor character into the good guys and the Superman characters <laughs> into the bad guys, which if Sauron all of a sudden has this redemptive, he's the good guy all along arc, uh, maybe we shouldn't be surprised because uh, it's hard to separate Bezos uh, from some of the characters that show up in the shows that are on Amazon. Yeah, I was actually going to make that reference before you did hit hit it with me. Uh, but that, that's that's fair play, you know. You like to have the guest have the shine on this show, and <laughs> I'll let you have the next one. That's all right. Um, the one last concern that people a lot of people had is that one of the charms of the Lord of the Rings movies, um, the original ones, not the Hobbit movies, was that Peter Jackson used the the verdant hills and the big mountains and all the, the lush scenery of New Zealand, almost like another part of the cast. What we're up against here, and part of that was shown through, that was one of the negative things I thought about this teaser trailer that we saw during the Super Bowl. Uh, my God, the Super Bowl is like two months ago now. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> you know how some of it looked chintzy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, of the, I think the entire trailer was a minute and full, and there were about three shots in the entire trailer that I'm like, yeah, this looks like Peter Jackson's trilogy or even the better parts of the Hobbit trilogy. But the rest of it did look like, you know, just not bad CGI, but just clearly CGI. And I think some of it was disappointing. It's like, yeah, you're not going to have giant statues of Numenorians. Like, they're not building that. But even, like, mountains and the backgrounds and waterfalls, which would be natural if they had filmed 20 years ago, are all gone. And while they did shoot a lot of the first season in New Zealand, they will be shooting the subsequent seasons back in the uh, United Kingdom. So whatever we get this season, we'll probably get even less. And as uh, me and Emily are covering uh, the Lord of the Rings films over at my brother, my captain, my podcast, we re repeatedly come back to that. The setting and the scenery and the landscapes and vistas are just like so integral to telling the story of middle earth and the Lord of the Rings, because it really gives a sense of geography, space and time um, and the journey that these characters go on in a way that, you really can't recreate with, you know, fake backgrounds or, um, you know, digital projections at this point. Yeah, I, I you cannot um, recreate just the, the first scene that pops in my mind is from Fellowship of the Ring and the, the shots of them passing through the mountains before they get to Moria. Just that wide shot of the snowy mountains and the big snowstorm and, Sal and um, Saruman in the background. Um, chanting, that's it, sort of like something you have to do with practical effects or with inter interposing uh, CGI on top of a, a, this beautiful natural background. And I hope it doesn't take too much away from what the series is. I mean, against all odds, I still am rooting for it to be good. You know, you never really want to go into... That's the big mistake people think about, you know, choosier viewers like you and I, that our criticisms, and I know you're probably generally more positive than I am at times, and I'm probably more positive than, than you know, some people that we share DMs with, that, you know, we don't go into something thinking that we're going to hate it. I wanted to like episode nine, you know, but it's just, it wasn't happening. Yeah, it's, I mean, I always try to be optimistic on it because it's very easy. Like right now the pop culture landscape is kind of bleak where it feels like there's a lot of assembly line production and entertainment coming out. And we're just kind of expected to take our quarterly dose of Marvel and star Wars content and say it's good and move on to the next one. But I'm still, I still think there are creative people behind a lot of these projects and I want to see what they have. And I'd rather see them like take swings and fail uh, as opposed to just like not even try. But um, so I'm going into this Lord of the Rings series with like hesitant optimism, I would say. Um, I would really love it to be great because great Lord of the Rings content has, you know, the power to be transformative or iconic or last several generations like we're already seeing with the Lord of the Rings films and obviously the Lord of the Rings books. Uh, but it just heart it just feels like content churn and it's hard to get overly excited about stuff when you know that it's just always going to be coming probably until the day we die for all the IP that we care about at some level or another. 
Yeah. And it, it just sort of feels like um, that the people who are making the, or at least trying to make the most viable art, and even then, what we're looking at is video game studios that have rampant abuses. But, you know, we look at someone like Hideo Kojima, and I've never played really any of his games, but I mean, the way that people talk about them, it's loving. So I, I want to talk, I mean, I want to indulge you a little bit about Metal Gear Solid. I felt like, I feel like, even though I don't know much about it, I think maybe you can sort of inform me about what it is about the series that makes you so passionate about it. Like, it makes you, you you were for Metal Gear the way I, I get for Zelda at times. You know, I, the other day I was just sort of like thinking about, uh, thinking about the music from Ocarina of Time, just hearing Zelda's lullaby and, and, and just sort of like tearing up a little bit, you know, cause it's like, ah, it's such a powerful song, but like, that's me for Zelda. But what about you and Lord of the Rings? What about that series is so resonant? I think, well, first metal gear kind of got its hooks in me because it was one of the first console video games to have voice acting and scripts and performances and a real story outside of, you know, save the princess from another castle kind of stuff. Um, and it wasn't just that it had those things, but it was meaty stuff. The very first Metal Gear Solid is this incredible treatise on uh, mapping the human genome, the proliferation of nuclear warheads in a time where we were supposedly disarming and in the post-Soviet uh, era, you know, after the Cold War and the quote-unquote end of history. And it's just this wonderful thematic thrust that's anti-war, anti-nuclear bomb, uh, and then about passing on something meaningful to the next generation. But then it's all wrapped up in the aesthetics of 80s and 90s hyper-masculine action movies like Escape from New York or The Rock and a million other film influences that all come from Kojima's mind. And then just over the years, each title has really like added a layer to that. Like Metal Gear Solid 2 might be like the my most interesting work of art that has ever been created in my lifetime. It's this postmodern, confused story that's, why do you want sequels to these great games? And what happens when you take away your rugged, awesome, badass protagonist and give you this wimpy twink instead? Um, and like gauging the crowd reaction. And I think looking back on it now, one thing I wasn't able to articulate in my teens is most video games, and especially after 9-11, are just there to indulge the masculine power fantasy. Like, I am big guy with big guns, and I'm going to shoot and kill everything, and that's how I win this game or beat the boss or whatever. And everything in Metal Gear Solid is basically, no, if you do that, you're actually going to hurt yourself, you're going to lose a part of your soul or your being, or you're going to create a situation that's actually worse, and it actually pushes you to play non-violently, non-lethally, avoid combat if you can, and... It's just such a stark contrast to everything else that's basically in the same aesthetic and the same genre of military action. And that combined with its messaging is really put it apart. And I can't also just not mention that the games are just weird in a way that not many games are. Like you don't think of games having you switch controller ports um, or, you know, games reading your memory card to see what other games you've played or games that attack you with the ghosts of every character you've killed so far. Uh, during the playthrough. Um, it is a game uh, series that really challenges the player to think about what they're playing, what's happening on screen, and it doesn't give you all the answers. Um, so it's it's just something that's so different from everything else. And I, I think part of it is just I was there at Ground Zero um, in 1998 when that first Metal Gear Solid title kind of changed everything moving forward for the military action genre. I think that is a very good explanation because the way I look at the landscape of video games where you have so many uh, mainstream titles, AAA titles that are like Call of Duty, War, um, the, these these pornography of um, violence based on real people dying. And it just doesn't appeal to me the same way that, you know, if I take Metroid you know, which is a shoot 'em up game, depending on. That just depends on which title it is the vantage point that you uh, you're shooting people, right? Um, and it's just sort of like I, I would much rather play as uh, the nice lady in the big armor 
who, uh, you know, keeps getting sucked up in these space pirates antics than, you know, uh, cosplay as general, general Patton. So I think that this explanation of why Metal Gear has resonated so much with um, a certain gamer feels to me like I, I missed out, you know, and it's fine. You know, I can always go back and play the games. But I mean, I, I just love I, I, I think I finally get why people love Kojima so much. Um, speaking of uh, that weird, wonderful man, uh, did you play his? Did you play Death Stranding at uh, all? I have played it. I have not beaten it. I got about ten to twelve hours into the game. I was enjoying it. It's just other things kind of came up at the time. Um, but this was also about the time we started planning the Metal Gear Solid podcast, and uh, me and my host both, who had also basically played it for twenty hours but not beat it, we basic basically made the commitment to play it for the podcast once we wrap up uh, the Metal Gear Solid franchise proper. Uh, so it will be something that we're really looking forward to. But I, I know a lot about the game because it, it's been a topic of conversation basically every games chat and on Twitter uh, for the last couple of years. It kind of, I don't want to say predicted the pandemic, but it was a game about isolation and delivery and a nationwide um, pandemic, for lack of a better term, uh, that dropped like literally months before COVID affected us in the real world. So um, it'll be real interesting to go back, play that game and look at its themes, knowing that everything that happened in it came out before uh, COVID and how it, you know, kind of for- foretold the lifestyle we've all been leading the last two years. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people, uh, you know, played video games, you know, and must have been weird for people who did play Death Stranding to sort of play it in isolation, you know, sort of uh, through the looking glass again. Uh, people watched a lot of TV and movies, too. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be remiss to have to have this podcast. You know, we, we first sort of became acquaintances in the, in the Star Wars DM. And Star Wars is in sort of a weird place because they seem to be anchored on the planet of Tatooine. But... The new Obi-Wan trailer sees him going off that world. Um, it's weird. Star Wars sort of made hay as, you know, an epic movie franchise. And there's 11 movies, uh, 10 of them worth watching, in my estimation. But now it's sort of settled into uh, streaming television. Um, what is your take on this switch? And with the amount of lore that you know, Lucas and now Disney sort of baked into Star Wars through scads and scads of extraneous media, uh, some of which has been made not canon by Disney, but has also been creeping back into what they consider to be canon. You know, uh, Thrawn was thrown out, but then he was brought back in, and, you know, Ahsoka, Ahsoka Tano and all these other, you know, people that were written about in the EU books and, and comics are creeping their way back in. Do you think streaming fits Star Wars better? Like television, the serialized format fits Star Wars better? Or do you think it needs to have these epic movies punctuating it every once in a while? I'm always just personal preference. I'm a movie guy um, and specifically Star Wars movies. Like they always felt like the reason you go to the movies. Like even when I was younger and uh, my family didn't really go to movies that often. Uh, the Star Wars movies were like one of the few things, and I'm talking about the special editions and then eventually the prequels, were like events that you know pulled everyone out to go see, hey, what's this new Star Wars about? I'm not against the streaming model. Um, I think you know the first two seasons of Mando, uh, more or less, are two successes. Uh, so I think that's all great. Uh, it's just weird kind of weighing in on this right after the Book of Boba Fett, which is probably the weakest <laughs> entry in like the main live action Star Wars um, storytelling, maybe aside from the Rise of Skywalker, I guess. Uh, well, well, Boba Fett was weird. Rise of Skywalker felt like it was just bad. Yeah, I would say there's still upwards of an hour to two hours of absolutely fantastic content in the book of Boba Fett. About an hour and a half of that is completely Mando related and has nothing to do with uh, Boba Fett. But I mean, there is stuff there. And I think it's interesting uh, kind of watching the change in Star Wars because you kind of went over like the history of it as a entertainment uh, centerpiece. But from a production standpoint, for a long time, 
it was the brainchild of one person. And then all these like semi-affiliated authors were able to tell their stories, though Lucas never really, you know, bought into the canonicity of like Mara Jade and Grand Admiral Thrawn and all that. But now that we have Disney uh, kind of in the stewardship of Star Wars, we're seeing them, you know, and I think some of the weakest choices that have happened in Star Wars of late, specifically the rise of Skywalker and perhaps the book of Boba Fett, is it does feel like a little bit of that executive boardroom driven decision making, like with some of the stories in the uh, rise of Skywalker with, you know, de-emphasizing Rose Tico or, you know, making Rhea Palpatine instead of, you know, keeping the origin as they laid out in The Last Jedi. And then something like the Book of Boba Fett. I think more or less everyone agrees it just kind of filled a hole in the Disney Plus schedule uh, between Hawkeye and Moon Knight, basically, and to give us some Star Wars content in between Mando and Kenobi. Um, so that's kind of where you start start seeing that this isn't really there because there's some genuine inspiration and more that, Hey, it kind of makes sense for us to put out a movie or a TV show at this point. Yeah. And I think that's sort of why I can give a pass to the prequels. And I mean, in a vacuum, I could agree with somebody who said the prequels aren't good movies and maybe they're right. I mean, maybe I'm kinder to episodes one and two and because, you know, I, I wasn't kind to them at the time. Like I hated attack of the clones until, I watched a few more times with my kids and sort of softened on it and saw that, yeah, there's some bad parts in there, but like there's some good parts in there too. And I feel like the switch going from one mind of, of George Lucas, how, however, you know, jaded, bitter and fucked up as that mind is to sort of this like corporate boardroom mentality, as you put it. And I think the, the biggest problem was, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has some of the same things going on, but like at the end of the day, the, the, the guy with the, the the guy with whom the buck stopped, Kevin Feige, he's you know he's a caretaker. He's not you know he he cares about what he's putting on the screen. I think he's a fan, you know. Whereas with the the, the movie trilogy, it was J.J. Abrams. And, and that guy can, can suck a railroad spike. Yeah, I, I think Ryan Johnson was a really good get. But if you look at generally otherwise what they've been doing with the Star Wars direction, especially at the big screen level, it has been, you know, J.J. Abrams. Uh, Colin Trevorrow was initially in there for The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, Ron Howard was eventually the one who brought Solo to completion. Uh, Gareth Edwards It's just these aren't really directors that you know, kind of shout at you as auteur. And granted, you know, uh, maybe Star Wars doesn't need that, but part of the success over in the Marvel realm of things is the fact that they brought in a Taika Waititi or a James Gunn or someone with like kind of different background or someone you might not expect. Uh, and they can bring their own kind of sense of both humor and aesthetic to uh, the stories, which really gave them kind of a boost in the arm, especially with Guardians of the Galaxy and Thor Ragnarok. Um, and I just don't think we've seen that kind of risk-taking in terms of direction uh, from the Star Wars films. And I think we're suffering for it because I'd say J.J. Abrams at best is a pretty mediocre director. I think he has a couple films I like, like the first Star Trek or Mission Impossible 3, but nothing that I'm like, yeah, this guy, this guy's brilliant and I want to see all the stuff he does. Uh, and that's kind of why I liked uh, Ryan Johnson because I think he, he had a take. Uh, whether you liked it or not, he had a specific take about Star Wars, about its mythology, and kind of it, they he offered a way for Star Wars to move fo forward and break out of this Skywalker saga mold. And of course, there was a loud contingent of the fan base that absolutely hated it. And then that made Disney or Star Wars or Lucasfilm uh, just like, nope, 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 we're going to make it exactly how you wanted it. You know, Luke Skywalker is the best. And uh, women and black characters don't matter as much. Uh, and, it, you know, it just it kind of muddled the message. We were so close to breaking through. And then um, the obnoxious Star Wars fans kind of kind of turned it back. And uh, I actually want to circle back to something because you mentioned hating the prequels for a time. Um, and I liked the prequels when I first saw them because I was a kid, um, not a kid. I was like <laughs> seven, 16 uh, when The Phantom Menace came out. But it's just like, oh, yeah, this is fun. This is cool. This is more Star Wars. And then after a couple of years, I'm like, I hate these movies. And I indulged in the red letter media videos, which 
Um, if you haven't seen, there's these very long videos about why the three prequel movies are garbage. And for a while, I thought that was righteous. Um, but now looking back on it, A, I'm not sure I agree with most of the points in there, but B, I can draw a straight line from those videos to kind of shitty fandom culture now. Um, just the way we talk about them and the way, whether ironically or earnestly, people use racism and misogyny in talking about Star Wars. Um, it's hard for me to separate the way that pe uh, prequel hatred manifested in certain parts of the internet. Um, so I too have softened on them in the long run and think there's a lot of valuable insight in them, even if the art isn't always up to par. Yeah, I, I circle back to the angry video game nerds uh, video on Castlevania 2, which focused on middle things like the uh, the menu prompts, overlooking the fact that Castlevania 2 is, you know, a pretty good video game. Um, but it's, it's that sort of nerd entitlement culture. And you can do a whole podcast, get a whole roundtable panel, get you and bring you back and, and bring in some women, some some, uh, some some gay or trans people, uh, Jewish people, whatever. They have a whole roundtable on people who are actually affected by this stuff and, and talk about it, get their points of view. But I think circling back to sort of the idea of auteur versus, um, you know, corporate boardroom, I think Disney – I sort of found the niche with, uh, with Dave Filoni. Um, do you think that if they give Dave Filoni the keys, and Dave Filoni, if you don't know, he's um, a Star Wars super nerd who somehow looked into a job with Lucasfilm and then Disney as sort of a consultant and a director, producer, whatever. Do, do you think that under him, do you think we can get some semblance of the kind of vision that Lucas had before he uh, – you know, cashed out. I think in-house, he's by far the best avenue towards that. I haven't specifically watched the Clone Wars or the Rebels animated series, but supposedly those are just fantastic in their own right, but also uh, do a lot to supplement the prequels and kind of round out the mythology. Um, you know, it's sh shocking to me, someone who grew up, you know, in the 80s and 90s, where we only had the three movies, that now I can meet a random Star Wars fan and they'll say their favorite character is Ahsoka Tano or Jango Fett or Darth Maul or just Maul, rather, um, which, you know, would have been preposterous to me, even just in the light of the prequels. But because of the work Filoni did in those shows, um, kind of really expanded the Star Wars universe. And I think one thing that he really did in those shows, which again, I haven't seen, is he didn't make the universe feel as small as sometimes it does feel, especially like after the rise of Skywalker, where it feels like, well, only eight people in this entire universe spanning several systems of planets matter. Uh, it seemed like Filoni was able to, you know, build up characters we knew like Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, but then also deliver us a bunch of new characters who mean a whole lot to a bunch of people. Even in the Star Wars DM now, there's regularly conversation about characters that I have no idea who they are because they haven't been live action, like Ezra and Sabine. And there's probably a million others I can't think of right now. And people are so passionate about these characters. And you need someone like that uh, because I really think Star Wars... Star Wars needs to find a way to evolve or grow past kind of the bubble it's built itself in creatively. And right now, I think Filoni is the best avenue towards kind of bursting out of that bubble. But I think he needs some help. And I think, you know, I think they need to be a little more risky and willing to get away from everything being an Easter egg or referencing some event from the Skywalker saga and really try to build something new within the world of Star Wars. I think that's sort of like surprising to me that they're, they're so laser focused on, you know, Anakin Skywalker and the product of his loins. Um, when, you know, they have this other, the big successful property that's sort of a juggernaut in the, in the Marvel cinematic universe. And sure, like the, the source material for the MCU spans decades with hundreds, if not thousands of characters uh, that were created uh, mostly by Jack Kirby uh, and Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. And, and like, I, if I am a Kathleen Kennedy or Dave Filoni or whoever the hell is making decisions over in, in the Star Wars section of Disney, I'm looking at, you know, 
hey, you know, we have a lot of people who tune in for Iron Man, but we also have Spider-Man fans and we have Captain America fans and the Guardians of the Galaxy. And we're doing a fourth Thor movie. Who thought in 2005 that we'd have a fourth goddamn Thor movie (laughs) coming out by 2023? And, you know, we look at this this whole thing of Star Wars where, you know, it's a it's not just a planet. You know, and yeah, Marvel has, you know, the cosmic realm, but most of that stuff centered on Earth. And Star Wars, by design, has a galaxy. So why can't we explore different parts of the galaxy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I was going to say that's exactly it. Like part of the allure of a fantastical universe like Star Wars that is so expansive is that there could be multiple, you know, in fact, like hundreds of millions of different things happening at the same time, and they might just be loosely connected to each other or not connected at all. But what Lucas did is he gave us the language of Star Wars. He gave us lightsabers, Jedi, Sith, uh, hyperspace travel, aliens, you know, cantinas that are, you know, kind of interspecies. Like these are just basic things. They're not like specific to any one character per se, and you can just kind of take those and run with them. So that's why you can have just like in the old legends canon, just an entire book about the bounty hunters and the weird adventures they went on that only kind of tangibly related to Han Solo or Luke Skywalker. But right now it feels like if it's not stemming from that main narrative uh, route that is like the Skywalker saga, it feels like it's just not important or not something people are really interested in building out. That's, That's a shame. Uh, but I guess one thing I want to sort of ask you is, uh, let's, there's a popular game where people ask you if you pretend they wake up tomorrow and you're Batman or you're Taylor Swift or you're whoever. So wake up tomorrow and you are, uh, Kathleen Kennedy. Uh, what is the first project that you would greenlight? So I can't remember if I mentioned this last time we talked, but this is both going to be a very safe choice, but also maybe something that a lot of people don't think about is I, I would take the Mandalorian and baby Yoda to the big screen. I would make a two hour movie, just pick any Clint Eastwood or John Ford Western from the sixties and seventies and use that as a basis, make a Yojimbo, but with Mandalorian and baby Yoda, e- even if it's not great, you put those two in the theaters, that's a billion dollar uh, box office right there. And about 90% of all the complaining about Star Wars um, and all the what's the future of Star Wars, I think it's answered there. Um, just, and you know, part of this isn't really like the most artistically driven choice, but I think that that would go a long way in terms of, hey, Star Wars is still a, you know, a big budget movie franchise. Um, here's something that you love that isn't specifically you know, tied to, you know, Luke Skywalker or Han Solo. And I I mean, I know that Mando has kind of dovetailed back towards Luke Skywalker, but I'd really love to see them try to just take a man, Mando and Grogu story and do something just with them and some enemy for that movie um, and go across different planets and tell, you know, a lone wolf and cub story like they have been doing in the series. And I think just the benefits are manifold. If nothing else, it'll probably get more people to go back to the Mando series um, but it'll also show some level of confidence of storytelling outside of the Skywalker saga. That's that's I said it was good last time. I'll say it's good this time. Um, uh, and I'll say what I said last time. Uh, I would love to, to delve into the past. You know, this uh, the Star Wars universe, the Star Wars galaxy, is not some neophytic uh, um, area that you know, just sort of sprung up overnight, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of years of history that we are um, just taking for granted. And part of that can be good. You know, you can just have this this mystic lore that you don't even touch and you can have people use their imaginations. What a, uh, a novel thought, you know. Um, <laughs> but, uh they touched on it a little bit with the with the Knights of the Old, of the Old Republic, and those were some of the most critically acclaimed video games. I am again woefully behind on the video games, but they're out for Switch. I might grab them. Yeah, I've uh, started my first playthrough. I've never played them, but my Metal Gear co-host uh, 
Ryan, he I think he might even have Knights of the Republic 2 as his favorite video game ever, and he is a industrious gamer, so um, that is no no low praise from him. Uh, so yeah, and I oh, think yeah. that's a great great place to start. Uh, is and I think this is kind of what uh, Star Wars or Disney is trying to do with this High Republic concept is try to take us well back before even the Republic as we knew it in uh, the prequel movies and try to tell something that's a little more elemental. You can still have, you know, the forces of light and dark, even if they're not codified into the Jedi and Sith as we know them now. Um, But again, there's a basic language of Star Wars and you can take that and, you know, kind of apply it anywhere. And it just feels very constrained that every Star Wars story that seems to matter occurs over 70 years of time. Uh, which is like less than, say, Obi-Wan Kenobi's lifespan. Uh, you know, like kind of everything fits into a 70-year span. When you really, when you think about something as expansive as the Star Wars universe, there should be stories going on for millennia. Um, there should probably be a species of, you know, something like even more Yoda-like that lives for 9 million years um, and kind of be like the watcher on this universe, uh, not dissimilar from Marvel. But you can you can do so many wild things like... The bar is so, like, like I don't know if it's low or high. I'm trying to go with my analogy here. But, like, you can literally go as crazy and absurdist as you want with some of this stuff. And because it's Star Wars, there's a way to make sense of it within the universe. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, I am here for the jellyfish aliens who call Yoda a little, uh, a little mayfly. Um just uh, circle back to the, your, your, the subject of your other podcast that you and our good friend Stephen are going to be starting soon. I see that he's playing through Final Fantasy VI as, as uh, preparation. Uh, so we are taking it twofold. Uh, prior to Elden Ring, I was working on the traditional version of F, uh, Final Fantasy VI for the Super Nintendo, which was released in America as Final Fantasy III. Meanwhile, Stephen has been working through all the pixel remasters which have been coming out and the final fantasy 6 pixel remaster dropped i believe at the end of february and he has been taking on that one so he is able to bring that side of the experience to the podcast whereas i'm gonna bring a little bit more of the this is what it's like playing it in 1994 95 i don't think i played it till 96 but uh kind of get both vantage points and everything i've heard is the pixel remaster is pretty great uh, it looks good, and most importantly, it sounds great because uh, Final Fantasy VI, for anyone who doesn't know, has one of the most iconic soundtracks in video games. It was one of the first video games to include character light motifs, so that each character in the story had their own musical piece that was associated with them during key moments of the story. So, uh, knowing that, uh, I think Nobu, oh my, God, what's his, you, you know the name. You know, he he penned a wonderful score. I actually own the original score on my phone, even though it sounds like MIDI files from 1998. It still absolutely bangs. It's one of the best pieces of musical composition I've ever heard. And everything I hear is that the Pixel Remaster does it proper justice as well. Yeah, the decisive battle is my favorite boss theme in all of Final Fantasy. Yeah, uh, and my... My low-key hot take is that it's very roughly based on the main guitar rhythm from Metallica's Master of Puppets. Um, If I had any YouTube or sound editing skills, I would absolutely put those two next to each other to prove my point. But um, they have very similar builds in the opening guitar riffs. So uh, I'm in. Um, I guess I'm outing myself as an older Metallica fan from the 80s and 90s. So... Yes, back, back when they were back good. when it wasn't embarrassing to say you listen to Metallica. So, I guess my question for here is uh, why Final Fantasy VI? We know Final Fantasy VII is the one that is sort of critically acclaimed as the best one um, ever. I, I don't agree with that, although I did play through the original version on the Switch and. I liked it a lot more than I, than I did when I played through it the first time. I did I did like it quite a bit when I played through it the first time. And there's, you know, 8's underrated, 9 is my favorite, 10 is also really good, maybe the last great uh, old-style JRPG before the series evolved. But why 6? So I think 
six, just, you know, purely from a preferential standpoint is both mine and Steven's favorite. I, one thing, uh, kind of when I started the metal gear podcast and was planning the Lord of the Rings podcast was like, I just want to be able to leave my stamp or get my feelings out about all the art that's important to me in my life. And final fantasy six is just one of those things for some of the reasons I already mentioned, but it's what's really great about it. And I, I guess it's probably okay to do spoilers because if you're listening to your podcast or, you know, have been alive for the last 20 years, you probably know a little bit about this. But uh, (laughs) Final Fantasy VI is kind of about the world ending. And, like, you know, you kind of build to this climactic battle, but you lose. Um, And the world is ruined. You get isolated and separated from all your friends. And then it's up to you. Like, what effort do you want to put into rebuilding a world that's been broken for you? Um, and, you know, to what extent do you want to seek other human interaction, reestablish connections with friends, see if you can help help do the little things that make life easier for people, even in the face of, you know, a dictator or a godlike totalitarian uh, literally murking you with his laser from the sky whenever he feels like it. Uh, so I felt like it was very thematically poignant for <laughs> this moment in history, um, because I think we all kind of feel like the world's a little broken right now. And we're all looking for the steps we can to kind of piece it back together and make ourselves feel a little bit more whole again. And we're hoping that in talking about the game, that's very much about those things. We'll feel those things. And I will say there's a very good chance, if not a hundred percent chance that we'll probably spin that out into talking about either other final fantasies or other JRPGs and RPGs as a whole. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of Zelda and other kind of just, fantasy and video games that are similar to the final fantasy aesthetic that we'll get into as well. Yeah. And I think the build on your point, like every other final fantasy game is sort of like you build towards a climactic battle and whether, whether what happens in it or not, you know, it's, it happens at the end of the game. Whereas this game is about picking up the pieces. Like you don't have to pick up the pieces in final fantasy seven. You just have to fight the evil corporation. Final fantasy six is, is sort of like reckoning with the choices maybe that, that, that you didn't make, but the choices that you failed to prevent other people from making. And that to me is sort of the, a very bold, maybe the boldest sort of take you can put on a game. Um, especially, you know, one where video games, especially for older players like you and I, are based on accomplishment, based on you have to do this and, and get a high score, complete a game completely. Um, yeah. And as for other games that sort of will dovetail into, I think the first game is sort of the sister game to this, and that's Chrono Trigger. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, I, I, these two games are almost of a piece in a way. I think they're like kind of square. They were just square back at this point, and they were not square Enix or whatever uh, they go by now. But these are kind of like the two crown jewels of that generation of video games, the Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger. And they both very much are about what do you do when you know bad things are going to happen or bad things have happened. Uh, in Chrono Trigger, you actually there. So you're jumping between timeline. You're in this world, but you can jump into its past, into its future, into various um, times. And there was like this big cataclysmic event at near the turn of the millennium. And everything after that's like dystopian cyberpunk kind of stuff. But you can also go way back to primitive dinosaur style uh, uh, world. It's really, you know, kind of off the charts. But I think the very common, the common point is you're walking in a world that was once beautiful, was once, you know, great and filled with grandeur. And now because of various choices and actions out of, you know, your character's control, the world kind of sucks or, you know, got ruined. And I think that's, kind of also very similar to Lord of the Rings. If you want to circle back to that, just for this point is part of the beauty of Lord of the Rings is like, yeah, these characters are walking through this world and it's like gorgeous mountains and fields and all this stuff. But I think the prevailing theory is there used to be beautiful stuff here. Like there used to be elvish settlements and the Entwives and the trees were just beautiful walking along and, you know, singing, you know, drinking in the sun and sitting by the water. And now that's all kind of gone And that's kind of what I think Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger are trying to do is the same thing, is that 
what we had was great, but now what we have, we have to just work with it and do what we can to find those little existential wins, even if we can't actually stop the end of the world. And I think uh, the way Chrono Trigger and Lord of the Rings sort of, sort of vibe with each other is it's the time periods. And obviously Chrono Trigger, you're the same, I guess, I think seven people. I forget. I haven't played it in a while. I, I love the game, but I don't remember the specifics of all the part. I remember Frog and Isla and um, Luca and Chrono and obviously Magus. But then there's, um, you know, it's compressed. You can go from 65 million B.C., to the end of time, but it's all in the same sort of thing. But at the same time, you can see over time that you see the world's ruin where it starts and you can see the results of it. Whereas like Lord of the Rings, it's what we're going to see with the rings of power is you're going to see the origin of Sauron and, and all the, and all the stuff that happens and you can see the, how it reverberates over the thousands of years of the second and third ages. Whereas with Chrono Trigger, you see the start of the ruin of the world in 60, it, 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 65 million BC is when Lavos gets to the planet. But 12,000 BC is where you see the full, the floating continent of the zeal and how the humans of that time uh, made a deal with the devil to use the power of Lavos to enhance their lives. And it ultimately led to the planet's ruin. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating storytelling uh, in that regard. And I, I like that you mentioned uh, Magus, too, um, because I guess Chrono Trigger can have their own Magneto type in this game. Uh, because I think up to that point, I hadn't really thought of any villains joining your hero's party, but that's what Magus does. He's kind of framed as the big bad for the game. And about halfway through, you realize what's going on in this world is even bigger than him. Um, and then he, you know, kind of becomes an unwitting ally and a member of your party, which is not something we had seen. And this is, you know, years before the sequels to the Fast and the Furious movies, where it became very much commonplace that the villain uh, ends up joining your party as a friend by the, you know, film's end or by the next movie. Um, seeing a character who is ostensibly framed as a big bad from the get-go uh, become an ally is something we hadn't seen. It's kind of the, the world ending in FF6 and Chrono Trigger, it's kind of like, oh, the bad guy becomes part of your party is kind of the big shocker. In addition to all the crazy time jumping and the revelations about what was happening with Lavos and who was tapping into it uh, across the timeline. Yeah, I think as a wrestling fan, that sort of happens a lot where you, you, the big heel, you want him to the root for him and he, he gives you the chance to. So video games... Started with that, and then you have it happens in, in, in culture to uh, other shows and movies. Uh, most recently, I watched a show called Keepo and the Wonder Beast with my kids, and the big bad for the first two seasons turns out to be, you know, a good guy at the end. And um, I want to sort of wrap up first. Let us know, man, Manu, where can we find you on the internet? So you can find me personally at Manuclear Bomb. That's M-A and then Nuclear Bomb. And that'll be my name basically anywhere you can find me on social media, which will be Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. Um, and patreon.com slash bomb is where I kind of is the hub for all my projects um, where you can subscribe and support both Podcast Sans Frontiers, my Metal Gear Solid podcast that I do with my friend Brian, and my brother, my captain, my podcast, which I do with Emily uh, discussing Lord of the Rings, and I guess coming soon, searching for friends about Final Fantasy VI with our friend Steven. So you can find find all of those through Manuclear Bomb on those sites, and uh, all those podcasts as well have their own Twitter handles and Twitter accounts, which you'll be able to find through my account as well. So um, that's where you can find me, and hey, I'm always open for chatting about any of the stuff we talked about on this podcast and about a half dozen other topics I could go on forever with. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for coming on. You were a great guest and hope to have you back sometime. Talk about other yeah, stuff. Absolutely. Just let me know. I will be here. I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about following Kenobi and another seven Marvel properties and who knows what else. <laughs> great. I, 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 absolutely. And uh, you can find me on the internet um, at my newsletter at tholzerman.substack.com. That's where you'll find this podcast regularly. Um, I write about a various menagerie of things. Uh, this week, 
Tuesday, I wrote about Turning Red, the Pixar movie that made everybody mad. Um, yesterday, Wednesday, I wrote about the growing fungibility of the quarterback position in the National Football League. But I also write about foodstuffs. I write about music. I write about Pokemon. I write about wrestling sometimes. Unfortunately, Scott Hall left the world last week, and I wrote a, a eulogy for him. He touched a lot of people. He was a tremendous wrestler, a tremendous guy. Um, I did the same for Brody Lee, Jonathan Huber, when he passed. I hate having to write about wrestlers only when they die. Yeah, it's, but. It happens too young for too many. And Scott Hall was a big one for me. I'm not much of a pro wrestler watcher now, but I was huge in the 90s. And Razor Ramon was a favorite. I had uh, his and Shawn Michaels ladder match from the Royal Rumble of 94, I believe. On uh, It was WrestleMania oh, 10, Oh, WrestleMania actually. 10. That's right. right. Sorry. Um, I believe that was 1994, though, right? Am I? Yeah, okay, so I got, I got part of it. It's been a long time since I've accessed that part of my brain. Uh, but uh, I, I was a big fan of him, and I was there when he uh, debuted in WCW and the whole NWO takeover. So um, it, 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 we lost a real one. I, Scott Hall was always iconic to all pro wrestling fans, so that was a tough one to absorb. It still is tough to absorb. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at T Holzerman. Um, I, I started using Instagram again. Uh, I post a picture of my my son and his little cousin. But um, you can also find me on Facebook. But I'd rather you didn't. Um, but uh, wherever you find me, uh, thanks for interacting. And also, if you want to buy me a coffee, if you like this episode of the podcast, if you like anything I write, um, you can give me three bucks on Ko-Fi. It's not mandatory, but I would appreciate it a lot if you bought me a coffee. I like coffee. I drink too much coffee. Uh, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, indulge my habits. Um, you can find a link in the show notes below. But whether you do or not, thank you for listening. And as always, keep it a buck.